0: Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Okay, here's a joke. And this is a joke that was told to me by my 11 year old son, Dante. What's the difference between boogers and broccoli? I don't
1: know. Kids eat boogers. I am Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download the show that helps you win your dinner party.
0: You just got a joke from Michael Simarusti, chef of the Michelin-starred restaurant Providence in Los Angeles. That'll help break the ice. Especially at a party full of 11-year-olds. That's correct. But we've also got plenty on this show for grown-ups. Later, we'll chat with Brie Larson, star of the acclaimed film Short Term 12. It just came out on DVD.
1: Also coming up, Boz Lorman, director of The Great Gatsby, talks about movie music. And if that lineup sounds familiar, that's because this is a rebroadcast of one of our favorite shows from last year. That's right. So cast your mind back to the far warmer month of August when, as at any dinner party, we started with Small Talk. Now for something you haven't heard, we are joined by Pat Morrison. She is a columnist for the LA Times and a correspondent at KPCC, the NPR station in Los Angeles. Pat, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend?
2: Well, I have to say first that you guys are late, but I know you've got a doctor's note.
0: That's true. We were a little late in uh, in recording you today. We apologize well, for that.
2: You're forgiven. The medical community forgives you. There's a man in Scotland who has been diagnosed with this. It's called chronic Lateness condition. Now, every man in America with health insurance is going to be going to his doctor to get the same diagnosis.
1: Wait, this is a real medical diagnosis? This isn't just. It was a real medical
2: diagnosis. He was a half an hour late to his doctor to get it, but it's a condition that supposedly affects the same part of the brain as ADD. And this man cannot properly gauge how long things take. He was going to, I think, a soccer match or a movie. He gave himself an 11-hour head start. He was still 20 minutes late. Oh, my. my goodness. So what's the cure? A watch? He has watches all over. He has a huge clock In his house, it's tuned to the national time, which is probably Greenwich Mean Time, down to the nuclear second, and he's still late. Oh, man. So, I mean, can he hold down a job or anything? Does he work from home, I guess? He says that he has lost jobs because of this, which is understandable. And it's kind of sad because he talks about leaving his first date standing on the oh, no. And of course, you know those first dates were the last dates. Pat,
1: what prompted him to finally go to the doctor?
2: It doesn't say why, but I would suspect that his friends may have
1: had a hand into it. Let's call it an intervention. Of course, they made the appointment for him in high school and he only <laughs> just arrived.
0: <laughs> uh, well, we, we do wish this man the best. And uh, Pat, we're glad that you don't have this affliction. Thanks for being on time and for the small talk. Tick, tick. Thanks, guys. And now time for Cocktails. <laughs>
1: Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's
0: like history's a lawn sprinkler shooting out booze. For people who hate their lawns. Yeah.
1: First, the history part. (laughs) This week, back in 1963, the most
0: exclusive communication line on Earth was connected. One that's almost never used, thankfully. Michelle Philippi tells the tale.
3: Slow telegraph service could have led to nuclear holocaust. This was in October 1962, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, which, for those of you who didn't pay attention in history class, was triggered when the U.S. learned the Soviet Union was building missile sites in Cuba. America blockaded the country, and the world feared nuclear war. Negotiations were tense and very delicate. And to make matters worse, communication between D.C. and Moscow took forever. Phone lines weren't secure enough, and telegrams could take hours to be encrypted, translated, and delivered. So after the crisis, everyone agreed it'd be a good idea to set up a speedier system to help leaders communicate in emergencies. On August 30th, 1963, the Moscow to Washington hotline went live. No, it did not consist of two red phones. In fact, the hotline's designers didn't want leaders to chat in real time. There could be translation problems or heated misunderstandings. Instead, each side got special teletype machines which zipped written messages straight to official translators. Our first test message, quote, the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog's back because it contains every letter in the alphabet. The Soviets fired back a description in Russian the sunset since then the hotlines undergone several upgrades in the 80s it consisted of fax machines and today the two sides use email and chat programs presumably not to send each other cat videos
1: so that was the history lesson now it's time for the drink to go along with it I'm on the line, not a hotline, just a phone line, with Gabriel Apatroy. He is the bar manager of Marivana, D.C. Uh, It's a Russian-themed bar in the District of Columbia. Of course, the city where one end of the hotline was connected. Gabriel, you heard the history what cocktail did that inspire you to make?
4: Yeah, we uh, we adapted the uh, existing cocktail in our list. I adapted it and uh, I called it Red Telephone.
1: Red Telephone, okay, because that's how most people think of that communication line between Russia and America. Yeah,
4: exactly, but we thought that it might be a good idea to actually um, give uh, like life to this Red Telephone.
1: I was disappointed when I found that out. Were you disappointed? I always thought there was a real Red Telephone.
4: I thought it had it too, but, well, we, we did come up with it, so.
1: <laughs> Alright, yeah, well, this is great that you created a red telephone that's not a myth. What's in your drink? How do you make it?
4: So we, uh, in a mixing glass, we, uh, we put three ounce of sea berry homemade infused vodka. Okay. We add uh, one ounce of uh, elderflower liqueur, the one ounce of um, squeezed orange juice, and uh, one ounce of Morse cranberry juice.
1: So the cranberry juice is called Morse. It sounds like Morse code, which is, obvi- you know, <laughs> <a> code- <laughs> Yeah,
4: M-O-R-S. <laughs> Ah, Without the I see.
1: <laughs> so it's a, it's another homage to this original line of communication.
4: Yeah, yeah, that, that's actually uh, yeah more.
1: I had to unencrypt the message you gave me there with that ingredient. <laughs> so go ahead and wh- what else do you have? In okay,
4: the so uh, we add ice into the mixing glass. We uh, give it a shake. Pour it into a martini glass. We add the grenadine and we pour it like on the um, on the. Um,
1: You pour it over a spoon?
4: Yes, over the spoon, exactly. So it will go like nice and neatly um, at the bottom of the martini glass.
1: And then you have your red drink, your red telephone. The
4: red telephone is ready to to drink. (laughs) The connection is established.
0: And Brendan, dig this. There actually is a red phone on display in Jimmy Carter's Presidential Museum Mm. with a card that says it was used for the Moscow hotline.
1: What? Yeah. But I just, I thought I, that... I know,
0: hold on. A bunch of sources actually say the museum is wrong and that that red phone was probably used as a hotline to the Pentagon or All right. something like that.
1: All right, as long as there is an actual
0: red phone because sure. otherwise... That's the main reason to be president is to have a red phone.
1: That and the nuke code
0: suitcase. If that's your thing. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you can communicate directly with our cocktail recipes. They are at dinnerpartydownload.org. So we've made some small
1: talk, served up some drinks, but the party hasn't truly begun till there's music to play.
0: And for that, we turn to Daniel Zott and Joshua Epstein, aka Dale Earnhardt Jr. Jr. That would be the beloved Detroit band, not the race car driver's son. They are playing next weekend's Cultivate Festival in Chicago to promote their forthcoming album. Here they are with a few song suggestions and to relive some trauma.
5: Hi, my name is Josh. And I'm Daniel. And we're Dale Dale Earnhardt Earnhardt Jr. Jr.,
6: We've got a record called The Speed of Things coming out October
5: 8th. And in celebration, here's our dinner party soundtrack. Even though Jimmy Buffett has a great career selling
6: chips and flip-flops, <laughs> he once upon a time made music and made a song called Cheeseburger in Paradise.
0: Cheeseburger in paradise How about
7: all the
6: The low point in my music career <laughs> actually revolves around Cheeseburger in Paradise. I used to do cover shows to pay the bills while, you know, between going on tour. There was a time when I was playing the lunch hour at a Mongolian barbecue, and then the manager came up to me and he said, can you learn some Jimmy Buffett songs for tomorrow? Can you do Cheeseburger in Paradise? I got to the part where there's the breakdown, and he's saying, I like mine with lettuce and tomatoes." And I just broke down crying because it was the most embarrassing, humiliating moment of my life. And it was like in the middle of a performance. I think for a dinner party, the most important thing is facilitating an easy conversation. Having a personal anecdote that you can easily draw upon is kind of a nice a nice thing. And being able to reveal the most uncomfortable moments in your life endears you to people, and,
5: and then thereby bringing you closer. Speaking of troubadours, let's move on to another troubadour here (laughs) for the second song. We're going to play a Leonard Cohen bit called Lover, Lover, Comma Lover, commas in between each lover there.
4: I asked my father, I said, father, change my name.
5: Leonard Cohen is obviously
6: one of the most cutting artists. He can say four words and it like breaks your heart.
4: The one I'm using now, it's covered up with fear and filth and cowardice
8: and shame
6: but it's also like a really catchy chorus and you can just kind of like let it go and and, and not really have to notice it, which I think is, is always nice when you're having a dinner party. Lover, lover,
4: lover, 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 lover,
6: Sometimes, you know, maybe it seems like he's writing a love song, but you kind of never know whether he's talking to God. It seems like he's talking to
5: God yeah. a lot in, in his writing. So maybe playing this song, we're doing the, the prayer for the dinner. Let's, uh, let's bless the food, in a way. The worst time after a meal is cleaning up. So my dad, to motivate us, would always put, a, put on a song by John Lennon, and it was a song called Clean Up Time. So I think that would be a song I'd put on at the end of the night, you know, just as a subliminal message to all my guests. Hey, maybe you want to help me clean up, which I know probably isn't appropriate when you're hosting a dinner party. But subliminally now, when I want you to clean the van, I'm just going to put on clean up time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there <laughs> put you put go. Yeah, it's, I'll probably have a, I'll, a knee-jerk reaction. I'll just start picking stuff up.
2: Clean up time.
5: Clean up time. Clean up. I just, it's so ridiculous to me. I've always wondered, like, what was he thinking? Like, was that really that inspiring? Like, he was trying to get his kids to clean, and so he maybe he wrote a song. I think maybe he, he was, was trying to... to get off heroin, to be honest. Wow, that's heavier. Yeah. I never thought of it in that way.
6: I don't like to play any music that I've made at a dinner party, but if you wanted to listen to it on the ride home, I don't think that we would be opposed at all. No. You could put on Warzone from our new record. I think that's a great soundtrack for Driving Home. We don't necessarily have to deal with life and death situations all the time. And I think it's kind of interesting to take a character and put the character into that situation and then see how the character reacts. to run
7: in direction Between the concrete and the other wreckage Then the next morning there was nothing here
1: Dinner Party soundtrack from Dale Earnhardt Jr. Jr.
0: They're kicking off a fall tour in support of their new album, which drops in October. All right, we're going to take a quick break. But coming up, filmmaker Boz Lorman brings Kanye to the set and nakedness ensues. Uh Uh-oh. Plus, actor Brie Larson warns us about mutant oranges.
9: I think this is a conspiracy, you guys.
0: Also, we learn who put the Melba in toast when the Dinner
1: Party download continues.
0: Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. This is an encore broadcast of a show we aired back in August.
1: It features filmmaker Boz Lorman, who we'll hear from later, talking about his use of music in movies
0: like The Great Gatsby. Hmm. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. Yes, it's actor Brie Larson. On TV, she played the rebellious kid Kate in the United States of Tara. She was the evil rock star Envy Adams in the movie Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. But last year, she starred in a very different kind of movie, the indie comedy drama Short Term 12. It won both the Grand Jury and Audience Awards at the South by Southwest Film Festival. And critics predicted an Oscar nomination for Bree's performance. That did not happen, alas, but the movie just came out on DVD, so you can judge for yourself when we spoke, I asked her to undertake the very difficult job of summarizing the plot.
9: Uh, sure. I mean, the easy way to explain it is that I play a line staff at a foster care facility for at-risk youth. Right. But it's kind of more complicated than that, I think. I mean, you saw it.
0: Absolutely. And your character, of course, is not without her own troubles.
9: But of course. So it is kind of about someone who's supposed to be a, a mother figure who's also needs help herself. Jack, I'm sorry. Please? Cancel the pass until we figure this out because I know her and I know that things are not good at home.
10: And how do
1: you know that? Because she read you a children's story?
9: Don't with me, Jack. I am on the floor every day with those kids. And last night, that girl sat next to me and she cried and she tried to tell me the only way that she knew how.
1: Grace, you are a line staff. It's not your job to interpret tears. That's what our trained therapists are here for.
9: Then your trained therapists don't know.
0: The hard part here, though, is to get across that this movie is really funny, actually, at times. <laughs> yeah. But it obviously takes on a lot of difficult issues. It seems like it could have been a really fraught atmosphere on that set. I it mean, wasn't. It was
9: the most loving and most fun and most laughs I've ever had on any set. Well, how did that happen? <laughs> I don't know. I think about it now, and I just think that the, the only way that I think we could have gone to those dark places was at we weren't living it and we came out of it at the end and there was smiles and hugs and lots of support afterwards otherwise I don't think that we would have felt comfortable it's also kids you know they have this incredible ability to go into the character and then come out of it right away the second you yell cut they're not those characters anymore. Really, in you know, you, the second we told them there was an ice cream truck outside, they just fled. They don't care about the scene anymore.
0: <laughs> the, now, on the other hand, though, there are moments in this that seem they really do feel almost documentary. What did you do in a given day to create that atmosphere where that could happen? I mean, was were there times when the cameras were just roaming around and you were left to to your own devices?
9: Yeah, there were times when. For me, most of my day was getting to work and then putting my headphones on and and listening to Norwegian black metal and getting myself in this sort of like intense negative tizzy where I, I, that's the feeling that I had in my head.
0: That's, That's really your preparation was listening to Norwegian black metal?
9: Yeah, it was. It's really intense. But then it became this contradiction of me trying to battle what was going on in my head and what was happening in a scene where I had to be a caretaker. And in order to create that, they would sometimes just put, the like a lot of the group therapy sort of scenes, they would just have the kids in the room. They would think that we were just setting up the camera. I wouldn't even be in the room. I'd be oh. in the other room listening to something awful. And <laughs> Destin was just going to say, whenever you feel like it, you know. And then i just go into it. Destin,
0: by the way, is Destin Daniel Cretton, who, who Oh, yeah, the director. He directed and wrote it. And wrote it. He worked in a facility like this. He did. He experienced what it's like. But, but there is reality and then there's good storytelling and acting. Was there... A point in the making of this where you were like, I know this is how it really went in real life, Dustin, but emotionally this doesn't make sense.
9: Yeah, there were a few times. I mean, any time there was sort of a confession in the film, especially the one towards the end that, I, that Grace gives, I was terrified of it because you spend all this time playing somebody who really has the inability to communicate and you fear that giving some sort of speech about the specifics of their past, instantly an audience member is gonna go, Oh gosh, here we go. Yeah, cliche. Yeah. So by the time we actually hit those scenes, Destin was the one that was like, I don't know, I don't know about this. Hmm. And that confession scene, after feeling like maybe we're gonna cut it without even trying, hmm. we did one take and Destin was like, Oh, actually I'm I might be a better writer <laughs> than I realize, you know? And I think that was the take that's in the movie.
0: We have two questions that we ask everyone oh, on this show. Cool. The first question is: If we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you? What is the question that uh, kind of you least want to be asked? What
9: attracted you to the script of Short Term 12?
0: <laughs> Did I ask you that?
9: No, you didn't. I can't remember. Okay, good. I just any. I would like to talk about anything, anything other than the specifics of the film, just because I. I've never gone to, say, a magic show and then stayed afterwards to watch a QA and a because I want to know how he did it. Oh, interesting. You know, part of the fun of it is the mystery that's involved in it. Like, don't we all want to believe? Like, I even want to believe that Grace is real. It's it's <laughs> it's more interesting that way.
0: This is the, the paradox of being involved in the arts, though, isn't it? You go, and at some young age, you think that it's magical, and you want to know how they pull it off, and then you learn, and then it's like watching sausage get made. It's never the same.
9: <laughs> yeah, but I think that it's the artist's responsibility to make sure that the magic is... Saved, we're doing a disservice to it by constantly cutting it down and showing what's happening behind the curtain. We don't have to. Oh, man. It's very easy for me to say, oh, I just don't talk about that. You uh, know, we can talk about lots of things. I watch a lot of Khan Academy videos. You want to talk about the Renaissance? That's more interesting, I think, than hearing me is? talk about Khan Academy. What's that? Are you familiar? No. Oh, it's fantastic. You got to join. What is it's it? just like an online school. And they just have all these great videos and they have everything from cosmology to ancient arts and and math, if you want to learn algebra again.
0: Uh, I I don't have
9: stock in this company. I just really love it.
0: (laughs) Also, the name Khan Academy sounds like it's a school to become a criminal.
9: Oh, Khan Academy.
0: Yeah, that's unfortunate.
9: Yeah, yeah, I see. Different spelling than that. Well,
0: let let me ask you our second question. You sort of already answered it, which is tell us something we don't know. I didn't know about Khan Academy, but perhaps there's something else that you'd like to share that maybe blows people's minds at a dinner party?
9: Well, I found out recently... Well, there's a few things I found out recently that I've kind of been plagued by a little bit. Maybe there's somebody out there who can contact me in some way and, and help me feel more comfortable with these things. But one, I did, I found out that they're changing the DNA of the orange. What? Do you know about this? Yeah, no. I think this is a conspiracy, you guys. What's wrong right, with the orange? not anyone talking about this? <laughs> there's this thing called greening. It's this virus. The Orange trees, there's like two and a half million of them have been hit by this virus where they don't grow. They just kind of stay green. Okay. So they've had to find a new strain of DNA and now they're pretty much all oranges are gonna be genetically modified.
0: All oranges?
9: It seems like it I mean from the article was in the New York Times and and the way that it was posed was that it it looks like there's really no other option at this point. The epidemic that might happen, you know, people might have to switch to apple juice it would be so terrible. (laughs) that <laughs> that we've just gotta fix it. It's
0: fruit apocalypse.
9: Yeah, it's crazy. And then I was also reading about these lobsters that are now lobsters are eating each other. There's like a rising cannibalism, um
0: Brie, these are terrible things to talk about at an inner party.
9: Well, I'm struggling with them.
0: Yeah, but it's frightening, and it means no more eating lobsters.
9: Well, lobsters are already eating each other. Why can't you eat them? Well,
0: because they'll all be gone. They'll just be one mega lobster left. Yes, exactly. Well, my friend was
9: like, God, this is terrible. Lobsters (laughs) realized how good they tasted. (laughs) Now it's all over.
0: (laughs) So, Brendan, I, of course, had to look into the news items Brie mentioned at the end there. Total nightmare it's, inducers. Of course, but that orange disease, greening, mm-hmm. it is plaguing orange growers around the world. But it is not clear to me that it's going to force all farmers to have to grow oh. GMO oranges. All right. You know.
1: What? What about the uh, cannibal lobsters?
0: That is just definitely happening. I'm Ugh. sorry to say.
1: Maybe they'll sorry. give themselves gout by eating themselves.
0: You know? I maybe. <laughs> At least they'll be in pain. Let's just hope they don't discover melted butter, because <laughs> it'll just be a frenzy.
11: And now,
10: time to eavesdrop.
1: This month, acclaimed Colombian author Juan Gabriel Vasquez debuted his noirish new novel. The New York Times calls it, quote, a page-turner, but also a meditation on fate. This week, we overhear him tease us with a reading from the opening chapter.
10: Hello, my name is Juan Gabriel Vasquez, and my novel is called The Sound of Things Falling. It is the story of a young law professor in Bogota who meets this mysterious guy called Ricardo La Verde. Just after this Ricardo La Verde is shot and killed in the streets, my narrator begins a sort of investigation into the dead man's life. And that takes him to the years in which the drug trade was born in Colombia, in the early 70s, while Pablo Escobar was leading a sort of personal war against Bogotá and the Colombian government. Here's how the novel begins. The first hippopotamus, a male the color of black pearls weighing a ton and a half, was shot dead in the middle of 2009. He'd escaped two years before from Pablo Escobar's old zoo in the Magdalena Valley, and during that time of freedom, he had destroyed crops, invaded drinking troughs, terrified fishermen, and even attacked the breeding bulls at a cattle ranch. The marksmen who finally caught up with him shot him once in the head and again in the heart with 375 caliber bullets, since hippopotamus skin is thick. They posed with a dead body, the great, dark, wrinkled mass, a recently fallen meteorite, I was in my apartment in Bogotá when I saw the image, for the first time, printed across half a page of a national news magazine. That's how I learned that the hippopotamus had not escaped alone. He'd been accompanied by his mate and their baby, whose whereabouts were now unknown, and the search for whom immediately took on a flavor of media tragedy, the persecution of innocent creatures by a heartless system. And one of those days, while following the hunt in the papers, I found myself remembering a man who'd been out of my thoughts for a long while, in spite of the fact that there had been a time when nothing interested me as much as the mystery of his life. The memory of Ricardo La Verde went from being a minor coincidence, one of those tricks our minds play on us, to becoming a faithful and devoted, ever-present ghost, standing by my bed while I slept, watching from afar in the daylight hours. While in the morning radio programs and the evening news, everyone was asking if it was necessary to kill the lost hippos. In my apartment, I was thinking more and more intensely about Ricardo La Verde, about the days when we'd known each other, about the brevity of our acquaintance, and the longevity of its consequences. (laughs) On long, drizzly nights, or walking down the streets toward the city center, I began to think stubbornly about the day Ricardo La Verde died. Bit by bit I began to notice, not without some astonishment, that the death of that hippopotamus put an end to an episode of my life that had begun quite a while ago, more or less like someone coming back home to close a door carelessly left open. And that's how this story got underway. I don't know what good it does us to remember, or how what we've lived through can change when we remember it, but remembering Ricardo Laverde well has become an urgent matter for me. I read somewhere that a man should tell the story of his life at the age of 40, and this deadline is fast approaching. As I read these lines, only a few short weeks remain before this ominous birthday arrives. No, I won't tell my life story. Just a few days of it that happened a long time ago, and I'll do so fully aware that this story, as they warn in fairy tales, has happened before and will happen again that I'm the one who's ended up telling it is almost beside the point.
1: Juan Gabriel Vasquez reading from his new novel The Sound of Things Falling. You're listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media.
0: And now it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food.
1: Enrico, you know this. Lots of new foods have names based on their component parts. Okay. So, for example, there's the Sushi Rito, which is a mashup of sushi and burrito. Right.
0: The cronut, half croissant, half donut. That's right. right food
1: minotaurs. But there was a time <laughs> when foods were named after the chefs who created them or the person they created the food for.
0: Of course. Like Mrs. Butterworth, for example.
1: Well... <laughs> she was not a real person. Count Chocula. St- Stacy He's not a real person, but Stacey Conrad is a real person and Prove it. she writes for the magazine Mental Floss. <laughs> and she recently posted a video on their website about food names. When I met with her, I asked her to start by regaling me with the story of Melba Toast.
8: It was inspired by an opera singer who huh. Is, you know, obviously not dry and, and bland. Quite a diva from what I hear. Her name was Dame Nellie Melba. Uh-huh. So there's two stories on why the chef created this toast for her. And one was because she was watching her figure and this dry toast was just the best thing to snack on.
1: All right. This is um, pre-gluten-free era <laughs> yes. diva. Okay. Um, that was in
8: 1897. The other theory is that she was ill, and the chef um, at the Savoy Hotel was actually a friend of hers, and just created it to help settle her stomach before performances.
1: But there isn't a theory that after her concert it was so late, she arrived late to the kitchen. And they only had stale bread. That is not. That
8: is not a theory. Not an active. Not theory. that I've found.
1: All right. Well, that leads us maybe on to the main course of our of our meal here. Uh, let's have a margarita pizza.
8: Yep. So in 1889, the King of Italy and his wife, Queen Margarita of Savoy, was scheduled to go on vacation in Naples. It was a big deal. And one of the, the chefs there, who's a famous chef, Raphael Esposito, decided he was going to create some special dishes for their visit. And he ended up making three special pizzas. And of all of the, the pizzas, the one that the queen just adored looked like the Italian flag. So it was her basil for green, mozzarella for white, and tomatoes for red. And she mm. just thought that was the absolute best dish she had had <laughs> on the whole trip. And so he ended up naming it after her. Wow,
1: all these years of seeing margarita pizza pies, I never realized they mimic the colors of Italy.
8: You right. never look at it and thought Italian flag right there.
1: <laughs> no, I always <had, laughs> Oh, well, I guess those I thought of maybe a pennant, like a pizza pennant. There's a lot of Italian food actually on this list. Another one is the classic fettuccine alfredo which is just everywhere, and you, and you never stop to think that, hey, there actually probably was an Alfredo.
8: Yes, and this one I think is particularly funny because it was inspired by a picky pregnant woman, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, so many people with, can with, relate to. Yeah,
1: with great taste. So tell us how Fettuccine Alfredo came about.
8: Well, a chef named Alfredo Lilio was trying to please his pregnant wife, I think it was about 1914, and typical of pregnant women, nothing sounded good or she really wanted something that wasn't available, and so trying to make her happy, he... Added a little something extra to his pasta sauce, which was just cheese and butter, which is pretty typical pasta sauce. Mm -hmm. But what he did to make it special is he tripled the amount of butter, and she loved it. So we still eat it today, obviously.
1: And uh, cardiac surgeons around the world celebrate, Alfredo. (laughs)
8: Yes.
1: (laughs) Um, Well, okay, so those are some of our main dishes. Let's move on to dessert. First of all, let's have a slice of German chocolate cake that doesn't come from Germany. Where does German chocolate cake come from?
8: Yeah, nothing to do with Germany. It was named after a man named Sam German. Hmm. He invented this sweet chocolate baking bar and I, I believe Baker's Chocolate, um, the famous company, ended up buying it from him. And they called it originally Baker's German's Chocolate, possessive Germans. And just over time, the apostrophe S kind of fell off when people were talking about it and they started calling it German chocolate. And so that was 1852. And it didn't really become a big thing until about 1957 when um, the Dallas Morning Star published a recipe for German chocolate cake. Mm. And something about that just took off and it became a national sensation. And now we have German chocolate cake.
1: For people who maybe don't want cake, another cool dessert story is the story of famous Amos. Now, this isn't necessarily the name of a type of cookie, but it's a very popular brand. Tell us who Amos was.
8: Not a professional baker by any means. He was actually a talent manager, uh, and he had client, big clients like Marvin Gaye and Helen Reddy. Amazing. And the way that he, yeah, the way he wooed them to, you know, sign with him was that he would send them baked goods. And apparently the baked goods were so amazing that he talked actually Marvin Gaye and Helen Reddy into loaning him money to start a cookie company. And Famous Amos was born.
1: So when you were putting this together, are there any other patterns you saw? You
8: know, the the opera singers actually just fascinated me because Melba was not, Dame Nellie Melba wasn't the only opera singer with food. Also, Chicken Tetrazzini was named after an opera singer. Whoa. I wouldn't think opera is necessarily a, a mainstream form of entertainment these days so that people enjoyed it that much back in the day to name famous dishes after them, I thought was pretty interesting. That
1: would be the equivalent of naming a dessert a Rihanna right now.
8: (laughs) Yes.
1: (laughs) Enrico getting back to Melba Toast because who can get enough? Tasteless dry thing. Yum. Mm. Uh, The chef who created it was none other than Auguste Escoffier, the legendary culinary writer. Really? Who's famous for, among other things, codifying the recipes for the five classic French mother sauces.
0: That's amazing. Although, notice he just called them mother sauces. He did not name them after five (laughs) actual mothers. Yeah,
1: that's right. Pasta with Edith doesn't really sound (laughs) very
0: appealing. That would be pasta con Edith. Of course. Sounds a little better. Folks, we're going to take a quick break, and then director Boz Lorman stops by. This is the Dinner Party Download. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we'll speak
1: with director Boz Lorman about music and movies, including his latest The Great Gatsby. Yes, It just came out on DVD, which means high schoolers have yet another way to avoid actually reading
0: one of the greatest books ever. But, although I think teachers will be onto them when they mention Jay-Z in their book reports. That'll be a clue. Yeah,
1: hint, there's no Z in Jay Gatsby, guys. Anyway, first, it's time to learn some etiquette.
0: Yes, each week you send in questions about how to behave, and often we pose them to a celebrity of note, but once a month, we post them to celebrities of etiquette, namely our friends Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Setting. They are co-authors of Emily Post's Etiquette, the 18th edition, Lizzie and Dan, welcome back. Thanks
12: so much for having us. Good
0: to be with you. We suddenly realized, so you've co-written 18 editions of this etiquette manual. Seems pretty- Probably not all 18. Have you guys written all
12: 18 editions? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I was only born in 1982. (laughs) Well, you
0: know, you you had a hand in the 18th one, and it seems likely there will one day be a 19th. What social developments do you think are gonna need to be addressed in the next edition?
11: What is the
1: frontier of people being impolite right now?
0: Biological communication devices. Biotech etiquette. What etiquette issues are brought up by that? Uh, yeah.
11: My glasses are giving me information based on face recognition Ooh. software about the people I'm meeting with. Do I have to tell them?
1: Google glasses. Interesting. that's interesting. Whoa. Dan, I think you just got yourself
11: a job at Google. Seriously? <laughs> yeah, They've been right. distributing etiquettes with Google Glass cue cards that tell people suggested ways to use them to not give offense.
0: What is? It, what are some of the uh, rules?
11: When you're indoors, take your Google Glasses, put them up on your head like sunglasses so people don't think that you're videoing.
0: Oh. That's one. And then they're going to develop Google Glasses that have another camera on the underside of the so glass. That so that you, you can, can still do it. Right. Well, <laughs> when
11: people are already hacking them and getting them to do all kinds of new stuff, people can hack into your Google Glasses and see what you're seeing. This is
12: freaking <laughs> me out. <laughs> like... I hope we don't go there. All right.
1: Well, we'll when you write the 19th edition, we'll hopefully have you here. Yay. Let's turn to some questions that were sent in for you. This first one comes from Jen in Atlanta, Georgia. Jen writes... Often by the end of an internet date, and I guess that means someone she connected with online on a dating website, I find myself not liking my date, but am asked if I'd like to get together again. To avoid hurting feelings, I usually agree, and then either ignore later attempts at communication, or I text or email later saying we should just be friends. What is the appropriate way to turn down a second date?
12: I think Jen's doing herself a service but not the other person a service when she accepts the date. She says, I don't want to make them feel bad. What you really don't want is to make you feel bad about turning them down. That's Mm -hmm. true. The real way to handle it, Jen, is to be blunt from the beginning and appreciate that someone was interested. You know, like, I really appreciate that you're interested, but for me, I don't think this is going to work out. But what about diluting it by
1: saying, uh, I'm thinking back to my second date days. (laughs) Uh, What about if you generally said, you know, I I don't know if I'm ready for dating right now. Even if that's it's not well, true. Why are you on a yeah.
12: dating site dating? Exactly. Well, I
1: thought I was, but now I'm not. Because it seems like what you're saying is like I don't like you, and that seems really painful. Isn't well, there a way to come
12: you... on? Let's get real. What's really going on in the situation? <laughs> you are saying I'm not interested. It could
0: be, but d- doesn't social? Yeah. I mean, you. Let's be honest. You guys are often telling us that we should be subtly, you know, lying. No, but yeah. I'm,
12: and now I'm telling you to be straightforward and gently true. <laughs> you're
0: tearing us apart,
11: Liz. <laughs> I know
12: it's so complicated. <laughs> All right.
11: Maybe you could try to table. The decision.
12: You know, I, I'm not ready
11: to talk about a second date yet. I like to finish the first one first. Oh, so, there we go. Well done. Live for the moment. Oh,
12: sure. He gets credit. <laughs> but at some point, you're going to have
11: to deliver the news, and maybe in person when it comes up is, is ultimately maybe easier and kinder. I right. have
12: found that it's not as hard and it doesn't get as bad reactions as you'd imagine.
0: All right. We're going to move from dating to wedding invitations. This is from Mike F. in West Hollywood, California. And Mike writes, The problem I'm encountering is what to put on the line after the big M on RSVP cards. Being in a gay male marriage myself, I am trying to figure out the proper title to put before my name and my husband's name. Can I put the word messers on that RSVP line? No one I've spoken with knows the proper usage of messers. I personally like it because it has a nice formality to it. But is it too old-fashioned?
12: You could do Messers. Traditionally, Messers was used to represent brothers in a family. So if you were the Messers-Smith, there is the chance that you could be confused with brothers. There might be some confusion there. Or you could use Mr. and mister, Yeah, or you could use your name separately with the and in between. Mm. And I
11: would jump in there and just say that in, in some ways, if you really want to assume the identity of a marriage, using an and on the same line between two names is a great way to declare marriage mm. and avoid right. the confusion that
0: might emerge around Mrs. smith I do wonder what women do in this case, though, because Miss means you're single, right?
12: Right. Miss would be for a single woman, and if you had the Misses...
11: There is an equivalent to Missers for Misses, but it's used so so infrequently most people wouldn't know what what to make of it do we
12: know what it is
11: <laughs> it's a contraction of the french and i'm i'm it's forgetting escaping, it at the moment yeah
0: well there you go mike yeah you've got a lot of options you do. and ladies you let's contact miriam webster the french embassy let's
12: get this into the 19th edition
0: that's a definite follow up question cuz it's got there we it's, go. it's, it's a
12: good, it's good one it's a valid yeah.
0: one all right
1: all right so this next question comes from David from Fort Collins, Colorado. And he writes, so I frequently need to attend rather high level business dinners where I like to enjoy a glass of wine. However, I'm troubled by the detritus that accumulates on the inside of my wine glass during a meal. Usually this causes no alarm. However, I find myself in business discussions with a rather proper German firm, in a very formal German private dining setting, what is the proper
0: course of action? So this is the detrit- by detritus. He's talking about you know the uh, sediment. Well, I had a question about
11: that. I, I saw two possibilities, and one was yeah the sediment from an older bottle of wine. You don't drink that last little sip that's got all of, the, no, of the, the detritus in it. So you can just leave that at the bottom of the glass. And... David doesn't say that he's an idiot. I mean, <laughs> well, did we need to tell him that? So, but, but There's a second possibility that what's getting inside the glass is coming from his mouth, that he's not finishing chewing and swallowing. That would, of course, be a different solution. You don't wipe the edge of the glass. You make an effort to swallow,
0: clean your mouth with a napkin. I just think, you know, German or not, I don't think anybody really cares or people really paying this much attention to a wine glass. <laughs> yeah. I'm that- not
12: sure. You know, some it's amazing, but sometimes when you really get into those upper levels of business and, and society, the things that people decide to notice, I mean it's it's a big turnoff for me when people assume that etiquette is about that as opposed yeah. to, you know, this gentleman being a good businessman mm, doing good business point. well.
1: I, I can't let this opportunity pass without sharing the story of my friend Ray, who was an altar boy and when he was a kid and everyone took the communion wine <laughs> at the end he had to take the one of the last sips of the wine the last sip. and he looked into the glass and it was just filled oh, no. with crud oh, no. and as soon as it was tipped into his mouth he just instinctively closed his mouth and the rest of the wine poured all over his white vestments in front of the entire church. Oh so I'm just saying etiquette matters, guys. Oh, now
0: raise in hell. <laughs> Great. Yeah, it
12: does. Lizzie Post and
0: Daniel Post-Senning, thanks for telling us how not to go to hell.
12: Oh, thank you, guys. It's always a pleasure. You're
0: most welcome.
1: Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning, co-authors of Emily Post's Etiquette 18th edition. And if you have a politeness predicament to present to the Posts, or just a pension for alliteration. Head <laughs> to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact.
0: Boz Lorman is one of the rare film directors who requires little introduction. He has lent his one-of-a-kind, often over-the-top style to a slew of hit movies. Oh, I, I love you, man. (laughs) Including Strictly Ballroom, Moulin Rouge, and The Great Gatsby. The soundtrack to the latter mashes together hip-hop, 20s jazz, and modern pop. It's one of the best-selling albums of the year. He has also released an all-jazz version of it called Yellow Cocktail Music. And just a few weeks back, he released the orchestral score. Right on. Gatsby the Film came out on DVD this week. Yes. We thought we would have Baz over to talk about his use of music in that and other films, and he accepted. So, Baz, welcome.
7: I am really happy to be here, Rico. Now, the only sad thing is I generally like to see people's faces, so it's sad I can't quite see yeah. see uh, your eyes or what you look like. We're but, in so separate
0: you... studios, that is correct. Uh, well. Will that be hard for you to relate to me, do you think? I think well, you... describe yourself. I'm not
7: trying to imagine it.
0: Well, I'm about seven foot five, I am oh, really? ripped, I've got huge muscles, <laughs> I'm handsome as hell. I am too, That's funny, we're, we're like twins. We're very similar to each other in that respect. <laughs> okay. uh, I wanted to start with your musical background, your soundtracks, sure, they're so eclectic. What did you grow yeah. up listening to? Like, What were your musical tribes?
7: Wow, you know, I grew up in a very small, tiny country town, 11 houses, and my dad had a gas station, and we believe it or not, Rico, you're like this. In the gas station, I had my own little radio station. I was about 10. It transmitted and everything? Well, it was basically a record player with two speakers stuck out the front where they were pumping <laughs> the gas. And I was a 10-year-old who believed he was in a radio station. I had two records. One was one is the loneliest number by um, Johnny Farnham. But of then course. something amazing happened. I went to this older kid's house, and they were like teenagers. I mean, they were 12. And I went downstairs, my father was upstairs, and, they were, and the lights were out. And they were playing this guy singing, This is ground control to major time. Oh, yes. It was Bowie, and that was a life-changing experience. I mean, I became
0: Bowie obsessed. You think that's where your eclecticism comes in? Because Bowie kind of reinvented himself with every album. Yes,
7: I actually think that's a very, very good point. He changes the idea that his performing characters. They were transformations of himself, yes. I think eclecticism, but, I mean, it probably did influence me.
0: Well, let's move from the music and into music and movies. It's, sure. you know, music has been essential to movies almost from the beginning. But it's pretty recently that a film's music can cause as much or sometimes even more excitement than the film itself. Do you remember the first time you found yourself maybe paying as much attention to a movie's music as the movie?
7: Well, well, that's easy, Saturday Night Fever. Oh, I, mean, right. I mean, I was there. I danced at the opening as a kid of Saturday Night Fever. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine my disco moves? Um, <laughs> I, mean, I had it. I had the white suit. I was about 15, and I had this, I had this sort of cheaper Australian company made the shoes. And, <laughs> but, I mean, look, that soundtrack, the Bee Gees were Australian, So, of course, I remember Saturday Night Fever and then Grease. But, you know, I grew up in this isolated place. So I also grew up seeing films that people disregarded. In those days, films like Citizen Kane, you know, Mm. old cinema was very much poo-hooed because it was the 70s. You know, it was a modern era. So I've always had... Rejecting everything. Yeah, I've always had a DNA for that kind of expressionistic cinema and their soundtracks. I mean, Fellini, for example. Nino Rota.
0: Fellini's yeah. composer. Incredible, incredible. Your soundtracks are also often anachronistic. In Moulin Rouge, you have turn-of-the-century Parisians dancing to Smells Like Teen Spirit <laughs> yeah, yeah, in yeah, Gatsby. Yeah. You have 20s party-goers dancing to a tune by Fergie and Q-Tip. Yes, yes. What attracts
7: you to that? I think, I mean, obviously with Moulin Rouge, it came from a desire to reignite the musical. And musicals had, fami- you know, White Christmas, the song, is in several movies. Musicals didn't have completely new scores, so the whole idea of using familiar music plus some new music was born out of just the desire to reinvent a musical. With Gatsby, I mean, some of the critics have whacked the movie and said, oh, it's like Lerman's really set out to you know, play to a younger generation. But you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald, if he, if he was anything, he was a modernist, and he took African-American street music called jazz and he put it front and center into his book. Mm. And he put popular songs in his book. And I wanted to approach the movie as if a 29-year-old Fitzgerald was making a movie. Today. Yeah. And I just didn't want it to be nostalgic. And that's where a lot of the music came from, that was the idea of mixing jazz and hip-hop. On you know what? The other day, probably the best review I ever got in my life happened uh, at one of the openings out of the shadows, this regal woman came and she grabbed me by the arm and she said, I've come all the way from Vermont to see... And she sounds like Katherine Hepburn. And, I know. That's interesting. I've come all the way from Vermont to see what you've done with my grandfather's book.
0: It was a Fitzgerald?
7: Yeah, it was his granddaughter, Bobby, and I knew she existed, but she's a bit of a recluse. I mean, I went cold. She'd just seen the movie. And she said, and you know people always said that you couldn't make Gatsby work. I think you've done it. And by the way, she said, I love the music. And then she just went off. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'm good with that.
0: That is a hip elderly lady. Yeah,
7: she's a, she was a very cool and regal person.
0: Um, I, I remember hearing Martin Scorsese's philosophy is to put the least germane song possible over a scene. So for example, he used Donovan's yeah. kind of hippie tune Atlantis over the scene in Goodfellas where gangsters are beating a guy to death. Yeah. What kind of rules do you have guide you in picking the right music for a
7: scene? Well, look, first of all, I know Marty very well. And and he's always been a great inspiration. I mean, I was a great Martin Scorsese fan. And the great thing about Marty, and I do this too, and maybe I learned it from him, is that he uses music on the set.
0: While you're making the film.
7: Sure. And one of the scenes, um, for example... I was doing the scene in Myrtle's apartment, a very crazy wild party. Hmm. So I wanted it to go kind of wild. And right in the middle of it, I cranked up NIP from Watch the Throne. It's, it's Kanye and Jay-Z. Kanye and Jay-Z, yeah. Cranked up the music and the wildness of that scene in Gatsby just suddenly the actors we just rolled for 20 minutes their blood started running yeah. and clothes were coming off and it was, <laughs> that's how it became referred to as the orgy scene I think when we used to test the film people go what scene did you like the most then they'd say Gatsby and Daisy meeting and the second most popular one was the orgy scene so we, we, <laughs> so I, I cut the orgy down a bit I have to tell you so we can blame that all on Kanye basically well on the Blu-ray at some point I wanted to just run one of the shots uncut
0: oh man you're appealing to our audience's prurient interest
7: well you'll find it fascinating as an acting exercise just how committed they were absolutely certainly my assistant enjoyed being kissed by <laughs> all those girls
0: <laughs> I wanted to ask you about what I think is the greatest musical moment in your work it is the climax of the love song medley between Nicole Kidman and Ewan McGregor and Moulin Rouge they suddenly break into the song I will always love you yes I remember seeing that on opening night and the audience went crazy <laughs> just because
7: Did you choose that song for that moment? Did you And did you know it would have that impact? Um, mine's participatory cinema. I literally expect the audience to participate. Like the fact that the audience applaud when Leonardo comes on in, in Gatsby. It's participatory cinema. The answer is, yes, I constructed it that way. With that song, I Will Always Love You, we had to top the finale. And what song could it be? So I went to... Los Angeles Beverly Hills and I met the writer of the song and her name was Dolly Pardon I've heard of her and afterwards I called her the the Dolly Lama of LA <laughs> the the, the Dalai. I get it and um it was because she was so gorgeous she was so lovely because what what people forget sure. is that it was a country and western song
0: and then Whitney and,
7: th- and then Whitney did it as a ballad and then I said look I, I we've got to top all these love songs and you're the one she, and she said well, well I don't know why we're even talking about it said you're going to make it a hit three times you know
0: director Boz Lerman and Brendan we're listening right now to a tune from Yellow Cocktail Music mm-hmm. the jazz version of the Gatsby soundtrack I mentioned earlier this is 70s glam rocker Brian Ferry doing a 20 style cover of a 2013 tune by lana del rey just another low concept project for boss (laughs) just following the herd as usual And that concludes this encore broadcast of The Dinner Party Download. Next week, we return with an all-new episode featuring Oscar-nominated actor and screenwriter Steve Coogan. Meanwhile, you can subscribe to our podcast via iTunes, and if you'd like to leave a nice little review there while you're at it, that would be just lovely.
1: Yes, hear that, Mom, Dad, (laughs) please. (laughs) Do it. Jackson Musker is the assistant producer of The Dinner Party Download. Brittany Martin does web stuff. Our interns are James Delahoussi and Esther Mania. Peter Clowney is our executive producer.
0: Bon appétit.